We're going to read in the book of Acts. We've been talking about, about who Jesus is. We've started in Matthew chapter 16, and we saw that Jesus raised this question to his disciples. He said, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, well, flesh and blood didn't tell you that, but my Father who is in heaven. We've gone through all that and we've spent a long time, really a good part of this year, looking over who Jesus is and that we've seen the the main emphasis of our study has been that He is the Son of God and what that means to us. And we saw, first of all, that that means that God gave His very best. He loves you so much that He was willing to give His own Son's life in your place. That's a measure, the measure of how much God loves you. And that revelation needs to continue to grow in us and get bigger and bigger in us. The second thing we saw is that He was God in the flesh. And what that means is He is God becoming concrete. So we now know what God's like. We know His character, His nature. And then we began to look and have looked over the last several months at what that really means because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we've been growing in our understanding who the Father is by looking at who Jesus is and what He did. And then we went, moved from that really into the heart of God, which is that He is a much more God. He's a God that doesn't hold things back. He's not a God that's trying to give you the, just what you need to get by, but He's a God that wants to bless you, take care of you. He's a God of vision. He wants to change your life and expand your life. I heard a preacher say a while ago, and it really went off in me, and I meditate on this, that when you come to Christ, everything's new. And see, we think we've been God, that what God's done is He's kind of cleaned us up a little bit and, you know, and He gives us a chance to improve things a little bit. That's not what the Bible teaches. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. That word new in Greek literally means a new species of being, one that's never existed before. So you're not a retread, you're not an improved version. God didn't come into you to clean you up. The old man died. And God put a new species of being in you, and it says it's of God, born of Him. And then it says, and all things are new. So with God, all things are new, if we let Him do that in our lives. There's nothing in your life right now, in your family, in your life, in, your, in, in whatever you may be bound up in, whatever you may be going on in your life that looks hopeless. There is nothing that is hopeless to God in your life right now. If we'll just trust Him and believe Him and do what He says. This verse went off of me this, this week. I was, came home for lunch and I just happened to, I don't do this very often, to turn on the TV and there was an old Billy Graham message, 1962. And oh, he fires me up. <laughs> and, and, and I was listening to it and while I was listening to it, something went off on me, in me, and this verse went off in me. So we're going to read this, Acts chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 9. And when he spoke in these things, these things were preparing them for him to go. He was saying, you know, now that you're... Now, now, because he's, he's, going, he's going to the cross at this point. He's been raised from the dead. He's walked among his disciples for about 50 days. And it says he appeared to over 500 people. And now he's called them to meet him on this mountain. And he's met them on this mountain... And only about 120 show up, which shows you that seeing isn't necessarily believing. 500 saw him, and 100 show up. A little over 100 show up. He's given them instructions. He's told them that they, although they walk with him, although he's been raised, although he died for them, although, in other words, although they're born again now, it's not enough. He said, you still must wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. 
And then, and only then, can you, will you be my witnesses. Not go witness, but be a witness of me when you've been filled with the baptized with the Holy Spirit. And having said these things, that's what verse 9 is about. Now when he had spoken these things, and while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, imagine what they were feeling at the time. I mean, just what they'd been through. They've walked with him for three and a half years or something like that. They've seen him perform tremendous miracles. And right at the height of the ministry, he's arrested, tried illegally, and he's executed in the most hideous method that was ever designed by man. Publicly crucified. And then at the worst moment, when everything is devastating and dark to them, now he's raised from the dead and he supernaturally appears to them. And they see the marks in his hands and in his feet. And now they've gone from tremendous discouragement and and they've gone from the darkness of the pit of discouragement to total elation and victory. And they've watched him still walk among them and they'll just be in a meeting and he'll show up just in their midst. He'll just come through a wall and he may be walking with them and suddenly they realize who he is. And all these things are stirring around and now he's told them to gather at this mountain and now as he's, they've got him there. They're ready to go. And a cloud appears and all of a sudden he just begins to rise up and they're watching him rise up. Where are you going? You just came back. Don't leave us. You know, it's like when a a balloon goes up and you want to, you know, because that's why these angels appeared. Notice what they appeared to do. Look what they're saying to him. Because we're talking about knowing him and walking with him. Now, when he spoke in these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. They couldn't see him anymore. While they looked steadfastly towards heaven. So he's out of sight. It's funny because when we, um, our, our, our family that visits, we have, you know, our oldest son and daughter and grandchildren live here near us, but we have three other children. And they, so they'll come back and spend time with us and visit. When we take them back to the airport, this happened the other day as we took our twin boys back to the airport, you know, because they're not coming back in 10 days. So it's like, like you know, we're going to see them again. But mama stood there and watched to the very last moment. I remember watching them go to the very last moment. You just want that last glimpse of them as they get out of sight. Because that's where your heart is. Your heart's with them. And that's what was going on. They're just staring now. They can't see him anymore. He's in the clouds. But look where their gaze is. It's up, trying to find him. Oh, come back. (laughs) Don't leave us now. And look at what happens now. God is changing their focus. And verse 10 while they looked steadfastly, there wasn't a glaze, gaze, towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. These are two angels. Who said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? There's times when God asked, God, you know, understand, God never asks a question because he's trying to learn something. God never asks you a question that he doesn't already know the answer for. He asks you questions that you don't know the answer for because he wants you to see something that you haven't seen. 
Why are you men of Galilee standing here gazing up into heaven? Look at this. This same Jesus. Now, what have we been studying? We've been studying this Jesus. We've been examining who is this Jesus. And now at this point, as he was taken up, ascended into heaven, out of sight, and they're still gazing at him. They're still trying to hold on to this Jesus that they'd seen, that they'd walk with, that they'd touched, that they'd heard his voice. They'd watched him walk on water. They'd watched him deliver them. They've watched him feed 5,000. They've watched him feed 4,000. They've seen him crucified. They've seen him raised from the dead. They've seen him do things no man has ever done before. And they thought they had him back again. And now he's gone again and he's out of sight. And an angel appears to him to change their focus to them. Why? Are you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in a like manner as you saw him come, go into heaven. Now I do things sometimes a different way. We're in the season when we celebrate his first coming. But we're going to talk about his second coming. It's interesting, as I was meditating on this last night after the play, I left and went home and I, and I just meditated on some of this last night and I thought of, this thought occurred to me. We, we sing songs and we, we read stories out of the Bible about all the fanfare and all the preparation that was given for His first coming. I mean, the Bible tells us that God sent a messenger ahead of Him. That was not uncommon in those days because if a, if a king or a prince was coming into a community or into a city, they didn't just kind of walk in, say, hey, prince, how you doing? It's nice to see you here. No, they wanted everybody to know he was coming. So they sent an advance guard ahead of time with trumpets, and they prepared the way, literally. They made sure the streets were clear. They made sure the, sure the streets were clean. It's kind of like when the president goes somewhere. They don't just, he doesn't just show up. They send secret service, uh, if they know enough, weeks ahead of time. And they'll, they'll literally they'll, they'll, they'll seal the manhole covers. They'll do all kinds of preparation for his safety. But in this case, they were doing it just so people would know he was coming and that the crowds would come out and see the king when he came. And in the same way, God sent John the Baptist as a herald to come before him to make way the way of the Lord, to prepare. And what was his message? Repent. He had a one-word message. Repent. That was to prepare them for his coming. And then when he did come, as we heard sung in this beautiful song of the special, when he did come, there was a fanfare. He didn't just born he's in a, as a baby, but there was angels that appeared in heaven that announced it. There was trumpets, there was singing, there were shepherds. People just showed up. Kings showed up. The wise men showed up with gifts. There was a tremendous preparation for his coming the first time. As meditating on that, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it talks about that same kind of preparation for a second coming. In fact, we're going to see some scriptures that say when it comes... People are going to get caught off guard. And it dawned on me, the preparation for His second coming is a different type of preparation. It's a preparation in here. It's a preparation of the church because the world won't be prepared. But the church, He wants prepared for His coming. 
And I really believe the reason God wants us to talk about that now, because I prayed about this. God, this is it's Christmas, you know. We're going to talk about His first coming. But you see, this is looking back, and it's a wonderful thing to do. But He's coming soon. He's coming soon. And as wonderful as our Christmas celebrations and remembrances are, and that's wonderful, what's really more important right now is that we're prepared for his next coming. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. We're going to talk about who he is now. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I just quoted the scriptures after it. So he is coming. I said he is coming back. And notice the one that's coming back is this same Jesus. But he's not quite looked the same. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. For he died for all, that those who live, that's us, should no longer live for themselves. Amen. Amen. But we should live for him who died for them and rose again. That's who we've been talking about. Therefore, that means as a consequence of this, because of this, from now on, We regard no one according to the flesh. What that means is we're not to look at each other according to the flesh, the outward man. People come into this church and stand up here, and I I just take it for granted. I always take it for granted that we look out here and we see different color skins, different age groups, different color hair. Some without any, some with more. We have about 30 nations represented in this church. And we didn't come together and legislate some program to do that. The Spirit of God has brought us together to worship together. Why? Because we're more conscious of the inside of us, which is what we have in common, than we are of the outside of us, which to the outward appearance looks different. That's what this verse is talking about. From now on, we're not to regard each other according to the outward appearance, but we're to evaluate and consider each other and relate to each other according to the inner man, because that's what he's going to go on and say. For if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. That's verse 17. So we're to look at each other as new creatures in Christ. We're to look at each other at the grace that God has brought and is continues to work in each one of us, inside of us. But there's another phrase that's in this verse that shows us this principle. Verse 16, Therefore from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though, look at this, this is the principle. He's trying to teach them this. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. In other words, there was a point in time when he walked physically on this earth and they could see the color of his hair, they could look into his eyes, they could feel the touch of his hand upon their arm and upon their shoulder, they could physically hear his voice in their ears. He said, we've known him this way before. We've had this kind of relationship with him before where we just looked at him and he looked at us and it was so comforting, it was so wonderful, and and this is what the disciples were, were trying to hold on to. And the angel said, no, you can't. But he's coming back again, this same Jesus. But what Paul's teaching us is the way we're to relate to him now 
is not the way they related to him when he physically walked among us. Remember, Jesus said this to his disciples. I think it's in John 16. He said, it's to your advantage that I leave you. Now, that doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, to them, my goodness, they had it made. They didn't have to pray. They just had to reach over and touch him. They didn't have to say, oh, I feel his presence. They just got right up next to him. John felt his presence. He had his head on his shoulder at the Last Supper. They didn't have to do anything by faith with him. They could see him. What can be better than that? Well, there must be something better because Jesus doesn't lie. So he said, it's to your advantage that I leave you. But part of accepting and receiving that advantage is understanding this principle. They could know... It's part, part of growing up is you've got to go from one level to another level. But in order to do that you've got to be willing to let go of the level where you are. Ooh, this could preach. In order to grow, God takes us from one level of glory to another level of glory. But what inhibits us from going from one level to another is you've got to be willing to let go of the level where you are. And that means being willing to let go of the familiar and the comfortable And when you do that, things begin to get shaken up a little bit. Whenever whenever I feel God dealing with this in my life, and and, and, and right now, both of us, Anita and I are going through this together. God's bringing us to another level. Things get shaky sometimes. And you can feel a little edgy, and you can feel a little unsettled, because things aren't settled. Because God's moving you, drawing you up out of what you're comfortable with, into something that you may not be comfortable with. And that's where people make the choice. I either want to hang on to what's comfortable and what I know, or I'm willing to let go of what I'm comfortable with in order for you to bring me to a higher level. And every level involves a deeper and closer and more intimate walk with Him. And the higher the level, the more faith it requires. See, when they lived among Him, and they could touch him, and they could hear his voice, it didn't require faith, because the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, things that are seen, hope hope that is seen, is not hope. You don't need hope, and if you don't need hope, you don't need faith, because faith gives you substance to what you hope for. So if if you don't have to hope for something you have, then you certainly don't need faith. So they didn't need faith to walk with him back then, they could see him. Faith is the substance of things... Hope for the evidence of things not seen. And if you can see it, you don't need faith. So they could see him, so they didn't need to exercise any faith. Now they were going to have to exercise some faith. So Paul says here, he says, For you, although we have known him according to the flesh, yet now we know him that way no longer. Does that mean we don't know him? No, we just don't know him in those terms any longer. So the Jesus we've been studying is a Jesus we've seen walking among people, performing miracles and doing all these things, but we don't see him doing that here, physically. Now I know we're the body of Christ, but see that's another level of growth. But we don't see Jesus in his robes walking among the aisles this morning. He may be there, but we don't see him doing that. We don't see him standing up here himself in his own person as he existed on the earth over 2,000 years ago. But he's here. 
Because the Bible says where two or more of us are gathered in his name, he said, there am I present with you. So he's here, but we can't see him. So it requires our faith. But he's just as much here because he said he would be. So we don't know him this way. Now let's go over. I'm going to give you an example of this. While you're turning, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me remind you. Well, we'll turn to Revelation 1. Verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which he gave, which God gave him to show his servants. So it's a revelation that God gave to Jesus to show his servants, which must shortly take place. Say, well, if it was shortly, that was 2,000 years ago. I tell you this much, it's shorter now. And he sent and signified by his angel to his servant. John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Now this same John, when you read through the book of John, you discover that at that last supper, as they were reclining around the table, that John was close enough to Jesus that he had his head resting on Jesus' chest. That's a pretty close relationship. See, Jesus had 12 disciples. He had 70 and he had a larger crowd. Then he had 70 and then he had 12. And out of those 12, there were three that were kind of in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. But out of the three, he had a different relationship with each one of them, but he had a closer personal relationship apparently with John. So that John was the one up next to him. John was comfortable resting his head on Jesus' chest. It's the same John that Jesus is about to appear to. What I want you to see is John doesn't go lay his head back on his chest. Let's go over to verse 7. And this is what John writes. And behold, he is coming with clouds. And every, Remember what the angel said? He had disappeared into the cloud. He's coming back in the same way. And every eye will see him, and then those who and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. And this is what Jesus said to him. I am, we sang this this morning, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Just in case you don't understand, those are, Alpha is the first word of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last word. So I am the A and the Z. I am A to Z. I am everything in between. In other words, I'm it. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. And he says that. The beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come. This same Jesus, who was, who is, and is to come. That's who I am, he says. The Almighty. And I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom of patience with Jesus Christ, was on the island that's called Patmos for, for, because on account of the word of God and on account of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book. 
and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that had spoken with me. And having turned, this is what he saw. I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the seven lampstands. One, like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest and the golden band, with a golden band. And his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flame of fire, and his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice was the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he had seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining at its strength. And when I saw him, I laid my head on his chest and rested there. Oh, no. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But, look at this, he laid his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I live forevermore. Amen. That means, so be it. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write these things which you've seen and which are and which the things which are about to take place. Notice this scene. Very different. Very different. We're talking about who Jesus is. We cannot end our study of who Jesus is without seeing who He is today. He is the Lord, the Almighty God, who rules and reigns today in unapproachable light and majesty. And this is the Lord that's coming back. See, when he comes back, he's not going to have a lamb over his shoulder and birds tweeting around his head. When he comes back, he's going to come back in glory and majesty and wonder and splendor. Now, now John, this John, is a, is a holy man. He's, he's, he's a martyr. He is, he's the last of the living disciples, of the original disciples. He has, been, he has been exiled to the Isle of Patmos, as he said, for preaching the gospel and being a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Patmos was not a, a, a five-star resort island. It was a rock pile. It was where they sent prisoners and lepers. It was a horrible place of rocks and heat. And he was, he was in church. It was the Lord's day. And in the spirit, whether it was worshiping or praying in the Spirit, we don't know. But in the Spirit, Jesus is communing with him. He sees this in the Spirit. Remember, so the angel says when he comes back, he, he's not going, Paul says, we're not going, we didn't see him. He, he, he looks different now. We don't relate to him the same way. But he's the same Jesus. And notice, when, when John has this vision of him, what does he do? He immediately fought, not because he thought, oh, this is the right thing to do. He can't stand in his presence. He falls down as if someone's dead. He was slain, in what we'd call slain in the spirit. He just went, boom, down and out. So, that, that, I, if you hear this today and you leave afraid, you've missed what God's saying. So you need to get the CD and listen to it again until you hear what God's saying. Because look what Jesus does. He doesn't say, whoa. Ah, they can finally see what I'm like. No. He wants the communion of this man. So he reaches out his right hand and touches him and says, Get up. Don't be afraid of me. But what I want you to see is the majesty and the glory of this Jesus today is very different when he walked on this earth. Because Philippians 2 tells us he laid that all aside when he walked on this earth. 
But in John 17, he asked the Father, Would you restore to me again the glory that I had with you before I came here? Well, guess what? The Father answered his prayer. Well, that's good news because he prayed some other things that concern us, that we may be one with him. So the Father answered that prayer also. That means you're one with him and he's one with you. And that, but the other part of that prayer is and that we're one with each other. Oh, I don't like that part so much. I like being one with him. But that's just as much answered also. So let's talk about this morning, or begin to talk about this morning. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us that Jesus is now reigning in glory and majesty? Well, what it comes down to is really one term. He is Lord. See, we have up here, Jesus is Lord. We have it on here because before we went on TV, it used to be on the back wall up there. And for television filming purposes, the light didn't do the right things with it. So we had to have it here somewhere, so we put it in the front of the pulpit. Because that's what the church is based on. That's what our life is based on. You know that's how you got saved. Romans chapter 10 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, yeah, shall be saved. So the final thing we're going to look at of who He is and who He must be to us is He's Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. But what makes a difference in your life is when He becomes the Lord of your life. Because remember what Jesus said to His disciples, Who do men say that I am? And they all gave their opinions. But then He said, Who do you say that I am? And the final answer to that question has got to be, you're my Lord. Well, what does that mean? What does Lord mean? Well, I did a little study on it in, in, the, in, the, in the Greek language. And it has... Uh, uh, um, well, before I get into that, let me, let me get into something else. First of all, the certainty and the significance of His coming back. And again, I did a little study of this. I, we could literally spend a year talking about His second coming. And I, I, we're going to cover what we're going to talk about in, in two Sundays. Pray for me. <laughs> no, pray for you. <laughs> so we're only going to pull out of it a particular aspect of it. But first of all, just to show you this, in my study, uh, the, the, and I didn't count this, this was in resources that I have. His second coming is talked about over 300 times in the New Testament. Far more than His first coming. That means in about one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers to or some way talks about His coming again. Paul talked about it over 50 times. There are three entire books that deal with it. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and this book we've just been in, Revelation. There are whole chapters, four whole chapters deal with it. Matthew 24, Matthew 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And many parables that Jesus taught were about His second coming. So why is this important to us? What is it we must know about this? What we must know about is who's coming and why He's coming. The one who's coming is Lord. He's not coming again as Jesus of Nazareth, walking around among the hills of Galilee in a white robe among sheep with carrying a a nice gentle sheep on his shoulder. He's coming back in all his glory and majesty as 
Lord. Now, there are things that have to happen before his lordship is finally established here. But he's coming back for his church as Lord. Lordship means three basic facets to it. The first of all, it means ownership. It means ownership. And I was praying about this and meditating about this this morning and really saw how true this is. Ownership, where does ownership come from? Ownership comes, well, let's talk about, you know, your car. If you're, if you're fortunate enough to be able to go in and, and to a dealership and to buy a new car, they give you a title, a certificate of title, which transfers ownership to you. Where did that dealer get that title? They got that title from either Ford Motor Company, General Motors, or whoever it is that manufactured the car. So the ownership comes from being the one who made it. If you make something, you own it. And then that ownership gets transferred from the owner to whoever the owner wants to transfer it. This is why no man, I never thought of this before this morning, no man can own another man in God's eyes. I'm going to say that over here. This is why no man can own another man in God's eyes. Because no man made you. That doesn't mean men haven't done that. But man cannot legally own another human being because he did not make him. But there's one who did make you. Not only did he make you, he redeemed you back when you tried to sell yourself to another master, to another Lord. So he paid for you twice. Once when he made you, and the second time when he redeemed you. So Lord means, well, why does he have the right to tell? Because he owns you. Nobody owns me. You're a bigger fool than you think you are. The Bible teaches us that there are only two kingdoms that the Bible talks about. There's the kingdom of God and there's a kingdom of darkness. You're in one or the other. And if you think you're in your own kingdom, I'll tell you which kingdom you're in. If you think you're the ma- your own master, you're in the kingdom of darkness because you're deceived. Because that's exactly what the master of that kingdom does. He wants you to protect yourself, make yourself, promote yourself. Do everything for yourself, just as this play is all about tonight. Self-made man. We're not designed to do anything on our own. Whatever you ultimately accomplish is either by the grace of God or by the working of the head of the other kingdom, ultimately. And when you come to Christ, what you do is you change kingdoms. Colossians 1.13 For He delivered us from the domain, the dominion, the kingdom of darkness over into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so the first aspect of Lord means He owns you. And doesn't the Bible says, Paul says, don't you understand? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. 
See, we, we want the benefit of what he paid for. I want my sins forgiven. I want to have an entrance into heaven. I want to be blessed. I want all the blessings of God, but I don't want to be owned by him. But to be your Lord, he has to own you. Well, we'll get off of that one because that's very popular, I can tell. Well, the next one's not going to be a whole lot better. Let me give you a scripture, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Let's go there because that's right after what we just talked about. Colossians 1.15. Is in here this morning? There we go. He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. We've already talked about it. The firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things, talking about Jesus now, by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may, in all things, in all things, in all things in your life, in all things in my life, he may have the preeminence. Turn with me to Matthew 28. This is the one that's coming back. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed to them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. Isn't that interesting? And they seen him raised from the dead, and still some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority, all authority, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have asked you to do. And lo, I am with you always. That's not what it says. It doesn't say that I asked you to do. It doesn't say that I asked you to do. It says that I commanded you to do. So somehow he thinks he has the right to command us to do something. Why? Verse 18. All authority. The second aspect of lordship, which comes really from the first, ownership. Lordship implies authority over. We don't like that word. That's why, I've got an, that's why I have an entire course we have you go through before you can be involved in ministry here called Understanding Spiritual Authority. Excuse me. We like authority when it's the authority that I'm in. We, we like learning to exercise authority. Oh, what devil, I got authority over... Well, don't you know we got authority over the devil? After all, Jesus told us we did. The disciples came back rejoicing. Lord... Lord, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. 
then Jesus wasn't all that impressed with that. He says, yeah, don't get too impressed with that. Be more impressed with this, that your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. He says, because I saw, I saw what the authority that I have is like, because I saw that guy fall from heaven like lightning. I, I'm not impressed. I understand the authority. So we, we like that kind of authority. And we like being an authority over people. But we just somehow don't like the other edge of the two-edged sword, which is being under it. Remember the story of the centurion in, Romans, in, in, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, where the centurion comes to Jesus. You've heard me talk about it before. He comes to Jesus and, and, and says, uh, and he's, this, is, this is not a Jew. This is a Roman officer. He wasn't raised in the catechism of the synagogue. He just observed. And he said, he said look, you don't need to come lay hands on my servant because I recognize something about you. I recognize that you're somebody under authority and in authority. Why? Because I also am somebody under authority and in authority. See, the authority can only flow out of you to the extent that you're under it because you ain't the source of it. If you were the source of it, you wouldn't need to be under it because it came from you. But we've talked about it's like the hose. You can have the most expensive garden hose in the world and the most expensive brass, gold, whatever kind of you know, nozzle to brew all, you know, all these fancy sprays you can get it to do now. But if you don't have it hooked up to that faucet and have it turned on and your water pipes are not hooked up to the town's water pipes or a well, there ain't nothing flowing out of this expensive hose. Because the hose isn't the source of it. And you and I are just hoses. We're just hoses. We're vessels. And you determine... What kind of vessel you are, Paul wrote to Timothy. It says in every house, there's vessels of gold and there's vessels of clay and pottery. You get to choose which one you are. That's what we're talking about. That's getting prepared. And so the second thing is that a, that a, that a Lord, a master, has authority over his area of responsibility. And notice the area of Jesus' responsibility. All authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And notice what he then says. Now, you go and make disciples of all men. I'll never forget, I don't know how many years ago. I think it was a Wednesday night. Pastor Sam was preaching. And he's talking about this verse. He said, the problem is the church is we're trying to go, go in an authority that we haven't come under. Why do you think the authority is given to us? It's so we can go and make disciples of all men. Maybe that's why things haven't been working when you stand in the name of Jesus and quote the name of Jesus and the devil doesn't tremble at the name, mention the name of Jesus. Maybe you've not been under his authority. See, when you know you're under the authority, it gives you make more confidence when you 
exercise the authority because you know you're, 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 you're screwed up tight to the faucet and there's nothing leaking out the side. There's nothing worse when I hook that hose to the faucet, you know, and you turn it on and you get sprayed. There's more coming out at the connection than there is the other end of the hose. That may explain where some of us are. Because you see, it's not enough for the hose to be near the faucet. It's not even enough for it to be connected. It's got to be uptight. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever you ask will be done for you. That's the authority coming out the other end. But you see, you've got to ab- abide in him. And his word has to abide in you. There has to be a tight connection there. And see, it's kind of hard to get tight when I don't want to be under the restraints of that. I want to do what I want to do. Oh, I'll give them Sunday morning. And, I'll, and, and if, it's, if it's not raining too hard or, you know, there's good enough weather, I'll give them Wednesday night. You know, and I'll read a couple of verses on Sunday morning, you know, every day or a couple of days, you know. And I'll do this for him. And then, but, but, you know, and I fulfill my obligation. And then I go live my life. I don't want to live my life. I don't want to live my own life. My prayer every morning now, I don't want to go through this day on my own. See, the closer you get to Him, the more you know you need Him. Isn't it interesting that Jesus spent more time in prayer than anybody else around Him and probably than anybody else here? And He's the Son of God. He knew the Father better. And He spent, the more He knew of Him, the more time He spent with Him. The more He needed to spend time with Him. Isn't that interesting? So when we, that's another thing Pastor Sam said one time, and I never forgot he says, you know, when we go through a day without prayer, what we're really saying is, I don't need you today. I can handle today myself. Now, I get in trouble. I know where you are. But I'll handle the day on my own. Thank you. You know, and I'll, I can attend to my own business because I just don't want you... I want you involved, but not too much. But he's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. Well, let's get off that one. That wasn't any more popular. <laughs> Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Today's castor oil. <laughs> Doesn't taste good. What was it my mother used to do? It wasn't castor oil. It was like that. Cot- oh, yeah. That was it. Thank- Some of you had the same mother. I can tell. <laughs> She would say, it's good for you. Now, I still like lima beans. <laughs> but Because but, she made me eat those. But ca- I, I got delivered from castor oil. What did I tell you? Philippians 2. All right. Now, the first thing lordship means is he owns you. The second thing is, therefore, he has all authority. The third thing that lordship means is there's things due back to him. And one of them is honor and respect. Notice that the, 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 the commandment that's emphasized in the New Testament from the Old Testament, one of the specific commandments that was given to Moses is in, is in you'll find in, in Ephesians chapter 6, 
And as children, obey your parents. Honor them. Because it's the first commandment with a promise. Anybody know what the promise is? Long life. So one of the main principles of the Bible is honoring those that have given you life. Honoring those that watch over. The Bible talks about honoring those that watch over you. Honoring your parents is a biblical command. So that's the Old Testament. No, Paul refers to it in the New Testament. The principle of honor is not. And who should we honor the most but the one who's given us eternal life? Honor him. Honor is an attitude of the heart. It's not so much what I say, it's what my heart's attitude is towards him. And it's revealed in what I do more than what I say. It's easy to come to church on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and to sing the way we just did and honor God. the way, And that's wonderful and that's exactly what we should do. But honoring Him is more than that. It's when I leave here. It's when I go to work. When, when a situation comes up and my flesh wants to stir up and, and I remember a verse that comes to me. Well, then just come to me. The Spirit of God brings it to me. And I have a choice to make. Am I going to do what the Word of God says or am I going to do what I want to do? And that's a way to honor Him. It's honoring Him. Because notice, the Bible equates honoring with obeying. Honoring with obeying. Because how can you honor somebody that you don't obey? Because you're basically saying, I don't think you're worth listening to. That was even more popular. Well, let's read through here. Because this is where we're going to go now. All right. That's all kind of a foundation here. Oh, Lord. All right. Um, Let's go. Philippians 2, we're starting verse 9. Well, let's go. uh, I know the translators don't have these verses, but I'm going to go back to verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not regard it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Notice, see, he did this first. Coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of men, he humbled himself and became obedient. Huh. This is Jesus. He had to become obedient. In Hebrews, it's either 5 or 7, it says, I think it's 5, 7, he said, or 7, 5. He said he learned obedience. Imagine that. Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered, the King James says, but went through is what that means. Why would he have to learn obedience? Well, because when he came to this earth, he was wearing something he never wore when he went to heaven. And it's not the robe, it's this flesh. See, God doesn't wear flesh. God is a spirit. And the only trouble you're ever going to have in this life is going to come at you through your flesh. Even the temptations of the Spirit come through the flesh. You have to see something, hear something, say something. And so now he's wearing flesh. And that's why I believe the Bible tells us that once he was filled with the Spirit, when he was baptized in the Jordan River, the very first thing the Spirit of God led him to do, isn't this strange, was to go into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil when the Bible says he lead me not into temptation. And the Bible says in, in, in James chapter 1, God doesn't tempt anybody. 
Well, God didn't tempt him, but he led him into a place where he would be tempted. Why? To strengthen him. Because he overcame the tests. And then the Bible says he returned in the power of the Spirit. I wonder if there's a connection. And I'm asking questions like God does now. I wonder if there's a question, (laughs) connection, between the fact that Jesus now walked in the power of the Spirit and had his flesh submitted. I wonder if there's a connection there. We want the power of the Spirit, but we don't want to submit our flesh. To have the power of the Spirit in flesh that's not submitted is dangerous. Because the next sometime somebody cuts you off and you've got the same power in you and you open your mouth and say what you think, they're going to blow up. See, we're coming to a time, my brothers and sisters, we're coming to a time when the power of God, God wants the, needs the power of God to flow in the church. The verse just keeps coming back to me as I'm praying for us, for you, for us, for all of us, for this church. Jesus said to his disciples, the works that I did shall you do also and greater works shall you do because I go to the Father. Jesus' plan for Faith Christian Center is that we do the works that he did. The sick, the blind eyes are open, demons are cast out and greater works. That's his will for us. So that requires the power, us walking in the power of the Spirit but that's not going to happen as long as our flesh is out of control and we can do whatever we want to do. And He needs us to come to the right place. Okay. Let's go on. Verse 9. Therefore, because He'd humbled Himself and was obedient, God has highly exalted Him. This is the same Jesus that's coming back. And given Him a name that's above every name that at the name or the mention of the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, both of those in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when He comes back, and there are several different interpretations of whether He's coming back once, twice, and we're not going to get into that. But he is coming back. And one of these comings, every knee, every knee, not just the church, every knee in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth shall bow and declare, whether they want to or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is why I don't get in arguments with people. I don't have to prove to somebody he's Lord. Because there's coming a day when they're all going to... We said when he comes back, they're going to see him. They're going to see him. You used to wonder, how can that happen? Because the earth is round. It is, isn't it? Yeah, okay. It's round. But now with all the satellites we've got, you can't hiccup in one part of the world... If you're important and somebody doesn't, it's not spread all over the world. A couple of years ago, we were at a 
had a Christmas tree lighting down in one of the towns near where we live with our son, daughter-in-law, and our two grandkids. You know, and I had my grandson in my arms, and we were kind of doing something face-to-face. We kind of, you know, just rubbing noses or something like that. And I come into work the next day, and there's a picture somewhere of this. How did that happen? Well, my son had his camera, took a snapshot, which ended up on Facebook. And my little private moment with my grandson became public. And have we not seen important people thinking in moments when nobody looked, ta-da, how much more then when the Son of Man returns in His glory? But the point here is, whether you want to or not, when you see who He is, when the world, even unbelievers, see who He is, notice, and under the earth, you know who that is? That's the demons of hell. When they see who He is, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's this same Jesus that's coming back. It's this same Jesus who you and I have the privilege of while we walk in this flesh of ours to make this declaration and to make this choice as an act of our will. And it makes all the difference out of this world. Well, it makes all the difference in this world, but it makes even bigger difference when you get out of this world. Because it makes all the difference of where you're going to spend eternity. But I'm talking to the church right now. We're the people who have called on the name of the Lord. We're the people who declare Him Lord. We're the people who worship Him as Lord. But when He comes back, it's going to bring an alignment because He is Lord. And if His Lordship is so powerful, if His Lordship is so majestic, if His Lordship is so glorious that everybody, whether they want to or not, will immediately go to their knees. Just as the Apostle John, who had had his head on his chest only weeks, only years earlier, now when he sees him, he falls down as a dead man. And Jesus has to raise him up out of love. Not from the dead, but raise him up and say, don't be afraid, There's not, it's still me. Remember, it's this same Jesus? Yes. But I'm here in my glory now. Yes. When he comes back, he's coming back in his glory. And what we're going to begin to look at next week is this second question. Are you ready? That's the question. Are you ready? Jesus asked a question of the disciples when he walked on the earth, who do men say that I am? And then he said, and who do you say that I am? This question now is, based on who you say he is, Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for His coming? Because He's coming soon. The Bible says, well, look at this. No man but the Father knows the day or the hour. Not even the Son knows. That's why no man can tell you what date it's going to be. He says this much. When I come... It's not going to be with angels announcing it weeks ahead of time. 
It's going to come and people will doing just like in the day of Noah. They'll be caring about business the way they carried about all along. And suddenly, 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 He will appear. And we need to learn to live our lives in such a way that we're ready. He wants us ready. He's not trying to catch us off guard. He's not trying to see, you know, we've already seen what God's like. See, this God we've studied that's much more, He's the same God. So there's nothing to be afraid of. But there's two scriptures, and I'll close with this. Because it has to do with balance. It has to do with balance. Balance doesn't mean one's right or one's, the other's wrong. Balance doesn't mean God's one way one day and one way. Balance is, is both of them combined together. I'll give you two scriptures, uh, which, both of which say, um, uh, Romans 11.22 says, talks about both the, the severity and the kindness of God. There's a severity to God, which is what we're talking about. Not, not severe and he's angry. It's just who he is. He draws lines. He forces choices. He makes people make choices because of just who he is. But he's also the God that's kind, the God that's loving, the God that's more than enough, the God that's generous. That's the same God that's going to come back in all his glory. And the other verse I want to give you is in uh, Acts 9.31. talks about the church prospered and grow, grew in peace because it grew in the... In the in, it, it grew in the um, it grew in the, the, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The fear of the Lord is not being afraid of Him so that you run away. The fear of the Lord is an awesome reverence when you see who He really is. And when you see who He really is, it begins to govern what you do and how you act. And that's where we're ending on His Lordship. Next week we'll begin to look at what do we have to do to be prepared. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for all that we've learned and seen throughout this year and there's so much more that we could have looked at and could have examined in the Word. But as we come to the end of this year and we come to this time of year when we remember and celebrate the wonderful gift of love that you gave to us and your Son when He came to this earth born as a little baby, we also must remember that it's the same Jesus born in Bethlehem It's the same Jesus who grew up with his brothers and sisters and grew up in Nazareth. And and then at the age of 30, anointed by your Spirit, walked among us and made us know what you're like and who you are. This same Jesus that died for us and was raised again from the dead is coming again in all his glory. Father, we want to be ready. We want to be prepared. And you, more than we want to be ready, you want us ready. So we pray, Father, that in the days and weeks ahead as we celebrate this Christmas, that you would draw us back closer to yourself, that you would make Christmas become not just an event or not just a a celebration, but a celebration of you, a growing, a time to grow closer to you again, a time to open our lives and hearts to you again. Thank you for that grace.